good morning to you. How's everybody doing? Good. We are in the book of? And today we are in chapter? And let me tell you, this one hits you right across the head. And um, I'm going to... We went on a vacation this summer, and it was planes, trains, and automobiles. But when we were in the cars, what we would do is we would drive until we would see a, a side or scenery that we wanted to look at more closely. So we'd pull off the side of the road, everybody get out and take pictures. That's kind of what I'm going to do this morning. I'm just going to read verse after verse after verse. But when, we, when I get to a verse that I think we need to pull over to the side and look at it a little bit more closely, that's what we're going to do. But one of the things that you notice when you're on vacation with your family, if you have children in the back seat, what is one of the first things you notice after about two hours of driving? Bickering, are we there yet? Fighting, are we there yet? Rivalry, why does she get the window? Why can't I have the window? She's not sharing that toy with me. No, I realize I'm aging myself. This is back before everybody had something in their hand, their own toys, but... You notice right away that there's, there's a bickering and fighting and all these things going on in the backseat of the car. And that's kind of what James is talking about in our passage of Scripture in chapter 4 this morning. Uh, we learned from Pastor Peter last week that um, James is addressing Christians, believers like you and I, in a church similar to ours, and also to leaders. So the things that we're going to be talking about this morning are things that leaders were doing. And so it might either make you feel good or it might make you feel sad, but it's encouraging to know that God loves us right where we are and will take us from where we are to where he wants us to go. So let's begin. What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Now, he's not asking this like a philosophical question. He's asking because, now he's talking to who? Leaders and Christians. So they're in the back seat bickering over who's going to be teaching, how their teaching was, who's going to get more food, who's taking up the offering. They're bickering over all these things. But what causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from evil desires at war within you? If you, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill. Uh, another translation says murder. There's some dispute that James was referring to an actual murder that had taken place in the congregation, but it's not been verified, so we won't say that. You are jealous, envious of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight, and you wage war to take it away from them, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Now, I want to just pull over to the side of the road for just a moment and talk a little bit about envy and jealousy. Jealousy is more like feeling threatened about something that you have, but envy is something that hits most of us. It's about, envy is about people that are kind of like you, people that are about your same age or maybe have the same job or maybe live in the same neighborhood. Envy is when you see someone that looks a lot like you or sounds a lot like you and they have a better circumstance than you have. They're being blessed more than you're being blessed. Now, we have had a run of people buying new homes in this church. It has been 
phenomenal. For the last year, we have had family after family after family buying and selling, and it's been tremendous. But I can imagine you're in your small group, and you're, you're telling your story. You're telling about the, the wonderful home that you have, and it has a pool, and a screened-in porch, and all these things, and we have more bedrooms than we have hairs on our head, and it's just wonderful. And I can imagine that someone sitting next to you, now this is imaginary, someone sitting next to you will be thinking, you're the same age as me. We used to live in the same neighborhood, and now they have a new home. They have a new car. I see the boat that they have. That's envy. You're tempted to look at someone else's circumstance and say, well, what about me? Here's a good definition of envy. When we compare ourselves with anyone like us, so like, um, if, let's just say you're a soccer player, a young soccer player in school, and you see someone like, I had to ask my grandson, uh, is it Christian Ronaldo, Ronaldo, okay, I, I'm outed. I don't know anything about soccer. But you're not, Kale is not tempted to be envious of this man. Why? Because he's in a whole nother league. He, he, you can't even compare yourself to that. It's when it's someone that's sort of like you. We compare ourselves to anyone like us whose circumstance seems better than ours. We face the temptation to envy. A really great example of that in Scripture was Joseph. He was one of many brothers. They all had the same dad. The brothers were so envious that, as we know the story, they sold him into slavery. So that's envy. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. Man, James, you can kind of tell he grew up with Jesus because he does not mince any words. He just calls it like it is. Now, he calls us adulterers because he's speaking to believers. If he was speaking to someone that did not say that Christ is their Lord, that did not claim allegiance to Christ, he wouldn't be using this word. He's using the word adultery because we are promised to God. He is our husband. And when we do the things that he's getting ready to tell us about. He's calling us adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? That is such strong language, don't you think? That is strong. An enemy of God, I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be found in the camp that is against God. I don't want anything to do with that. And so it begs the question, this is where we're going to stay for a little while, and then we're going to just continue. What, first of all, what does friendship with the world even mean? If you're someone that's sitting here this morning and, and, and you're a new believer, you're new to the faith, or you maybe you haven't thought about it for a while, what does friendship with the world even mean? And what does it mean? The, what does the word world even mean? Friendship with the world, what is that? I don't know what that means. So we're going to take a few moments and we're going to unpack what James means about this phrase because this phrase is so important that he said it twice. If we do this thing 
which is called being a friend of the world, another version is going to say love the world, then you have set yourself up in opposition to God. So I want us to make sure that we understand exactly what it is so that we can avoid it. Okay. Now, the word world in the Bible is used many, many times. I think it's like over 1,200 times. So I'm going to give you the three general meanings of that word. Because when it says, don't be a friend of the world, what does that mean? And then we're going to talk about the one specific meaning and apply it to ourselves, okay? The first one is the sum of all created things in the universe. And we know that that's a general meaning of the word. That's not the meaning that we're going to be talking about this morning when he says, don't be a friend of the world. We can love the planets and, and learn about the planets and the solar system and things like that. That's not what he's referring to in James. The second one is the dwelling place of man on earth. He's not referring to that one either. He's referring to this third one. We're going to spend some time on this. The dwelling place of sinners and sin, it comes from a Greek word called cosmos, and it means fallen creation. So what he's saying, what James is saying is don't be a friend of the fallen creation, of, of, of the world, of the fallen creation. When I was little, most of you know I was raised in a Christian home, a pastor's home. Don't hold that against me. I'm still a fun girl. Just ask my husband. But uh, we would sing a song, and it was so beautiful. The words were like poetry to me. Maybe some of you sung it when you were in, if some of you grew up in church. It was called, This is My Father's World. Does anybody remember that song? I know Pastor Peter will remember it. Pastor Mark. They didn't sing that. Oh, my word. Heathens. Scotland. The heathens over in Scotland. That was a good Quaker song that we sang. So it's, it, I'll just say one verse. I'm not singing it. But it's, it went, this is my father's world. To my listening ears, all nature sings. And round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought. Of rocks and trees, skies and seas, his hand the wonders rock. And we were raised on songs like this. And then we were also raised on songs that said, this world is not my home. I'm just walking through it. I'm not, I have no treasure here. All my treasures are beyond the blue. So that's like two different things. So which, which is right? Which is, which is it? We're talking this morning and... When he says, don't be a friend of the world, don't love the world, we have to understand two things. And those two songs kind of represented those two things. First thing is that fallen creation, the world that we, we look outside, we walk around in, is subject to the evil one. And I know if you're not a church person, if you're just here visiting, you're thinking, what, the evil one? What kind of place is this? We're just reading the scriptures this morning. It says, the time for judging this world has come. When Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. So that's the first thing we know. But if that's the only thing we know about the world, we're going to be living in fear, uh, hiding. Like the people that you see holding those signs on the street corners, the end of the world is near. We don't want to be like that, even though we realize that this world is influenced by Satan. So that's one side of the world, the fallen creation that we're talking about. And the other side is this. 
It is the object of God's love. The people on this fallen creation are something that God has died for, something that he went to the cross for. And so we have to keep both of those truths in our mind. It says in 1 John, do not love the world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. This, is this first hard for anybody else? I mean, this is, this is tough. This is really hard. For the world, as we just saw, fallen creation, only offers a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. When we think about what does it mean to be a friend of the world, what is he talking about? This verse explains very clearly what he means. The first thing, a craving for physical pleasure. Now, we know that physical pleasure is not wrong in and of itself. It's not wrong. He, he created our bodies the way that he did. And it's referring to the lusts that come from within, like anger, inappropriate things. The degree to which we've become comfortable with sexual sin would shock James. It would shock the Christians in this church he was writing to. We've become so comfortable with sexual sin, with watching it. With, well, it's not so bad. We, know, we might not participate in it ourselves, but we're comfortable with it. We've, we've come to think, well, what are you going to do about it? Fits of anger. It's not just lust that we're talking about. It's not just sexual things we're talking about. Anger. The kind of anger that is not godly. All those things that we do that, that come from inside. The envy, the jealousy that he was talking about earlier. Scandal. Division. Those things is what he's talking about. This is loving the world. The second thing was craving for everything we see. This one really hit me home this week. I was helping someone convalesce. So I was watching more of those fixer-upper shows that you see. Has anybody, has anybody ever seen one of those? Anybody want to, oh, my gosh, the hands that come up. Yes, I mean, there's not, obviously there's nothing wrong with watching those shows. But he says here, a craving for everything we see. You know, after watching that for about three hours, I, I turned to the person I was with. I'm like, you know what? We could, we could, Greek columns would really look good on our house, honey. You know, it's whatever they're working on. It's like, I want one of those. We need a bird aviary in our backyard. We could really turn our barn into a a wedding venue. I mean, it's like the more you see, the more you want. And this is what he's talking about here. Those types of things, contentment and satisfaction is not a part of a craving for everything that we see. And I got to say that I'm not really concerned that Darwin or Dawkins are influencing and infiltrating our belief system. I think it's music. I think it's television. I think it's YouTube. I think it's those things are infiltrating what we believe 
and causing us to want more and more and more. Pride in our achievements and possessions. Now, this one's hard because we are training our children to take pride in the things that they do, the right kind of pride in what they do, and we're proud of them. And we want to show off our new car. We want to show off our new home. I mean, we acknowledge that they come from God, and we think that they're a blessing, and we know that they're a blessing. So what is he talking about here? Because if the blessing comes from God, there's no harm in saying, look what God has done in our family. Look what wonders God has wrought in our home. There's nothing wrong with that. But what he's talking about is, is the lie that we tell ourselves that life is actually all about me. What makes me happy? What can I do today to make me happy? What do I have to drink today to make me happy? What do I have to buy today to make me happy? Who do I have to screw over today to make me happy? That's what pride of achievement and possession is, when we think that everything is about us. Um, let's look at a definition here as we scoot across the words. Worldliness, which is just another term for saying, if you love the world, it's called worldliness, is whatever makes sin look what? Whatever makes sin look normal in your life. Is there sin in your family that your children think is normal? Fits of anger, do they think that's normal? Watching father check out every woman that passes down the street, driving in the car, do they think that's normal? Whatever makes sin look normal, Pastor Peter last week talked about blessing and cursing and the words that come out of our mouth. What are our children thinking is normal? And what do they think about righteousness? And when worldliness is when righteousness looks strange. Do your children think it's strange to be thankful for their food? Do they think it's strange to, to pray for a friend that's sick at school? Do they think it's strange to want to help neighbors that have just moved in to see mom and dad go over and take a plate of food or a thing of brownies? Are you making righteousness look normal to your children? That's a great definition of worldliness. I wish I had thought of it. Before we move on, side note, you know how the verse says, for God so loved the world? That he gave. I think it's really interesting that he doesn't command us in that same way to love the world. But I think it's because God is the only one who can love the world without changing his standard. We want to be loved. We want to be respected. We want people to admire us so much that we change. And God won't change. He's the only one that can really love the world the way it needs to be loved and not change his standard. He's the same yesterday, same today, the same tomorrow. One more verse and we'll go on back to James. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ 
I'm thinking about my boasting. I was thinking about that this week. What am I boasting in? And, of course, we don't stand up and use the word boast, but we talk about this thing or that thing or where we've gone or what, 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 what we, accolade we were given. Or, and Paul's saying, look, I don't boast about anything except the cross, about what he did for me. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. And the world's interest in me has also died. That verse has really impacted me this week. Has my interest in the world been crucified? Do I have to see the latest movie? That's a big one for me because I, that's one of the things that Pastor Mark and I do on date night is we go see movies. It's really, and he's not saying that we can't go see movies. But if that's a source for me and not him, it's a problem. I love that. So let's get back to it. I think we should get back to James. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. So he's referring back to not loving the world, but just love him. He gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. All the grace that you will need to live a life that is boasting in the cross, God says, I have that for you. I have the grace that you need. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. He's going to give us eight things, bam, 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 right in a row that he says that we as Christians should do. I just want to say on the resist the devil, I know that there's a hashtag resist movement going on. Sometimes you see bumper stickers that say resist. And I would just like to submit to you that if we would spend a fraction of the time resisting the enemy as we resist the authorities that God has placed in our life, whether it's our husbands or our boss or our president or our whatever authorities have been established over us, if we would just spend some of the time resisting the temptations, resisting the snares of the enemy instead of resisting the authority that God has placed legitimately in our lives, it would make a huge difference. And when you resist him, what does it say he'll do? Flee. He will flee if you will put up the energy and the effort to make a stand and say no. No, thank you. No. But we have to resist. We have to put up the effort and make the effort. Come close to God. He will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. That means stop doing evil. Stop doing evil. Purify your hearts. That means stop wanting to do evil. Stop thinking about doing evil. Stop longing to do the things that you know you shouldn't do. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. I mean, he's not even giving us a break here. He's not even shoving in there at love verse or anything. He's just telling us things that, as Christians, we need to hear. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. He's saying, don't make a joke of your sin. 
Don't think it's a big funny yuck. Don't make a joke of it. He said, be, the Bible says, repent. Be sorry for it. Don't make a joke of what you're doing wrong, the things that are an affront to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will lift you up in honor. I'm going to take the time um, to talk about Paul for just a moment. Most of us, when we think about the Apostle Paul, we don't think of necessarily a humble man. At least I don't. I think of a man that's full of passion. I think of a man that was full of zeal for God. But I never really considered him to be someone that was necessarily humble. And so I was noticing as you read through the um, epistles and the letters that he wrote, how he changed, how his attitude changed about himself in relation to the sin in his life. Now, we know as he grew in the Lord and he was planting churches and, and traveling around the known world at the time, we know that he was not making a habit of sinning, but his awareness of sin in his life was growing. His conviction was growing. I just want to read a couple of phrases and then we'll finish our James portion. When he first started writing, before he wrote Timothy, he addressed himself as the least of all the apostles. That sounds fairly humble, but he was the least of the apostles is what he called himself. Then later on, he called himself the very least of all the saints. Later on, he wrote, I am the foremost of sinners. This is as he goes on, as he grows older, he has more scars on his back. He has more, he's planted more churches. Now he's referring to himself as the foremost of sinners. And then at the end of his life, he says about himself, I am a minister of the gospel only by the grace of God. The longer he walked with God, the more he was aware how much sin separated him from God. The more he was aware of his need for grace in his life, the more he saw himself as he really was and not what everyone said about him. I find that very touching. That old scarred warrior at the end of his life said, I'm a minister only by the grace of God. He was no longer the least of all the apostles. He recognized the place that grace had in his life. Humble yourself before the Lord. And what will he do? What does it say? He will lift you up in honor. We'll finish up here. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. That was covered so well last week. How important our words are. The rabbis have a saying that the tongue, that there is a third tongue. And they refer to criticism as the third tongue. Because it harms the person who is speaking it. It harms the person who is hearing it. It harms the person that has been spoken against. It's a deadly poison as we learned last week. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law. And I believe he's referring here to that royal law of love 
that we are to love one another. It's our job to love one another, and it's God's job to judge. And I believe that one of the most important reasons why we judge each other, say things against our brothers and sisters in the Lord, is because when they sin, it looks differently than when I sin. Your sin looks different than my sin. And since your sin looks different from my sin, I'm going to judge you. But we both have sin. And we know Jesus said later on in, another, in one of the Gospels, before you help your brother or your sister with their sin issue, what does he say do first? Fix your sin issue. Then you'll be free to help your brother or sister in the Lord. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to read this together. And I want to hear you. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans. All such boasting is evil. Remember, you know, he could have just started with that sentence, right? It could have been a whole lot shorter chapter if he had just put this last sentence first. Let's read it one more time. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. Um, I'll have uh, Pastor David or Rory come up and close, but I'd like to ask you just for a moment. He's hitting me hard with this. I think about what he says the world is. How that sets me up in opposition to who he is and what he wants for my life. I just want to ask you this morning. What sins are we allowing? What sins do our children think are normal? What are we normalizing in their life? What seems so ordinary? What do they see you do every day that's not even considered wrong anymore? What do they see you do that honors God? And they see you honor God so much and so often, but they no longer think that's strange. It's normal for them to hear mommy praising God in the morning. It's normal for them to hear daddy singing songs of praise to God in the evening. How do we normalize sin? And how do we make righteousness what the Bible says that we know we should do? How do we make that seem strange to our children? God is asking us that question through our servant and brother James. I don't want to be an enemy of God. I don't want to be doing the things that God said opposes him. 
I don't want those seeds planted in my children or grandchildren. And I know you don't either. So God help us this morning. Hi, Pastor Peter. Come on. So let's close our eyes, shall we? <clears throat> if you do a fraction of resisting against the enemy, how much more will God give you? He multiplies it over and over and over and over again. It's sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. We have no reason to bring to God why we're justified to not do what we know we should do. But the one thing I've found with God is the quickest way to his presence is repentance. Quickest way, in an instant, in the blink of an eye, we're back in the presence of the Lord. So I want to lead you in a prayer of repentance. And let's pray in this way. Our Father in heaven, who gave us your Son, that we might have a way to you. We thank you that we are free to come to you. And now we say to you, our Father, that we are sorry. We are sorry enough to change. That we do not do what we ought to do. And then just don't do it. Father, we're sorry. And with this prayer of repentance, by faith, we believe and we choose to believe that we are back in relationship with you. Not to act the way before, but to act the way you want us to. And we choose that because you're a good father. So Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray you'd fill us up with your spirit. You gave us, you said you would give us your spirit when we asked for it. You would give us good things when we asked for it. And Lord, we know that we don't need to stand in the corner and start worrying or wondering, does our Father still love us? You have proven it with the evidence of what you have given us. You're a good Father. And in the blink of an eye, every time we recognize when we haven't done what we should do, we repent once again. And we thank you that you are our good Father. And all God's people said, amen. You want something good this week? It's really easy. Find someone in this building to hug them and to love them and tell them you're so glad that they're here today. May God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Have a great day.